Hey there, podcast listener. How you doing? So listen, thank you so much for listening to Latino USA. And we'd like to better understand who is listening and how you're using podcasts. So would you do us a favor and please help us out by completing a short anonymous survey at npr.org slash podcast survey, all one word. It takes less than 10 minutes. And you know, it really, really helps support our show. That's npr.org slash podcast survey. Now, here's the show. From NPR and Futuro Media, it's Latino USA. I'm Maria Hinojosa. Today, a portrait of rapper Immortal Technique. Immortal Technique, stuck in your thoughts, darkening dreams. No one's as good as me. They just got better marketing schemes. Born in Peru as Felipe Coronel. Immortal Technique is a legendary underground hip-hop artist known for his skills on the mic, as well as for his raw, super-political lyrics. Is sponsored by corporations. That's why Halliburton gets paid to rebuild nations. Tell me the truth. I don't scare into paralysis. I know the CIA saw Bin Laden on dialysis in 98 when he was top 10 for the FBI. Government ties is really why the government lies. Read it yourself. His family immigrated to Harlem, New York. York from Peru when he was just a toddler to escape the armed conflict there. He grew up in Harlem during the 80s and 90s at a time when New York City was notoriously rough. Check the check, constant struggle to make the payments, working your whole life wondering where the day went. The subway stays packed like a multicultural slave ship. It's rush hour, 2.30 to 8, non-stopping, and people coming home after corporate sharecropping. Felipe says that because of the way that he grew up, he harbored a lot of rage. And eventually, that rage led him to prison. He was incarcerated for a year during his college years for assault-related offenses. While he was in prison, he honed his rapping skills. And when he was paroled in 1999, he took up freestyle rap battling. And he became a champion in the underground New York City battling scene. Just two years later, he released his first album, Revolutionary Volume 1, which launched him to fame, eventually collaborating with famous artists such as Dead Prez, Mos Def, and Chuck D of Public Enemy. But his brutal song, Dance with the Devil, is what he mostly became known for. Immortal Technique is still writing music, and his fans are holding their breath for the release of his first album in over 10 years. I sat down last year with Immortal Technique to hear about his life and how his rage got him to where he is today. And we're bringing that piece back. But before we listen to that conversation, I wanted to check in with Felipe, Immortal Technique, He's turned to philanthropy and activism in recent years, and a lot of his work is centered in Harlem. He's been very active during this pandemic. Between hitting the studio and working on his new album, Felipe has donated to various charity organizations, but he's also going out to help in his own neighborhood by himself. He's picking up groceries and running errands for those who aren't able to. And every few days for the past several weeks, he's been live streaming these runs on social media. My parents said to me, you have to be careful because you're all we have out there, you know? 
you're our lifeline out there, so you have to be careful. And then I thought about how many people don't have a lifeline. And I said, wow, okay. So if my folks need me, then other people need me. So my mentality is this, and I talked to my mom about this, and it's an, old, it's an old saying, but to whom much is given, you know, much is expected. I guess it's coming to fruition now, like the idea that a lot of things that were offered by this society um, could have always happened. So I feel like it's my duty now to pay that forward to the people that don't have it. One of the things that I have been doing on a smaller scale is supporting this organization called the South Bronx Collective, which are uh, a big group of activists and organizers that are going around helping people in the South Bronx and in Harlem to help those individuals that have been kind of uh, forgotten about, swept under the rug, the giant homeless community, the immigrant community, those people who were considered essential workers, but unfortunately didn't file their taxes last year. I've thought about, you know, how particularly people who are elderly or who are on a very fixed income, you know, who can't stand in line at the grocery store the way it is now here in New York, in Harlem. So what are the stories that you're hearing? How are people holding up? What are they saying? I think a lot of the older people in the community were the ones who felt the most vulnerable and the people who I talked to who were the most afraid because, you know, they were being told all kinds of information online, you know, oh, you're more susceptible to disease. It could kill you right now. So a lot of people that were elderly in Harlem were kind of afraid to do some of their shopping. So, you know, I'm, like I said, I'm not running a black market. I'm not uh, holding up Harlem on my shoulders like Atlas. This is a very small scale thing. This is only helping like a couple dozen people. This is not huge. I think the real credit belongs to the South Bronx Collective, the Border Angels, the Border Kindness people, the people that are uh, you know, helping on a, on a mass scale. And that's something I just, I, I, I realized is done through small groups of people uniting as one. It's definitely telling that, that not all hope was lost, that from the very beginning, there were a lot of people who said, listen, we're going to get through this. Felipe has always been outspoken and political, and that's an integral part of his art even now. Something inspiring to me was the Native American community. I want to give a big shout out to all the indigenous people that uh, reached out to me and that I, I reached out to as well. My man, Natani Means, the, the great son of, uh, of activist Russell Means. The people explained to me, we've survived many pandemics. We've survived many diseases. So everything that you're seeing on a daily basis because of this pandemic is affecting you on multiple levels. It's affecting your philanthropy. It's affecting your personal activism. I'm wondering, how is this affecting you as an artist? Oh. Are you, are you being able to be super productive or are you being more disconnected, more kind of introverted, giving it some time? Are you thinking about, will you be able to perform live? Like what's going on for you, the artist part of you? Well, here's an interesting thing, Maria. When this thing started really getting into gear, people started calling me saying, hey, what are we going to do about like the tours and everything else that's set up? And I looked at them and I laughed and I'm like, tours set up? Nothing. It's over. Nobody wants to go to these things. I'm sure there are lots of people out in the street that are campaigning for, you know, Shake Shack and Fuddruckers to open and they think that's oppression. That's not oppression. What I think the idea that we have to contend with is, you know, what's the long-term strategy for dealing with this? So you, as an artist, 
you know, you said to your team, look, forget about it. No, I said forget the tours. I said, we're still going to have to be in the studio. We're going to still do all that stuff. Yeah. So how are you, <laughs> what's going on creatively? I mean, how are you feeding yourself artistically? Okay. So this is interesting. As a writer, I write um, stories. I write poems. This coronavirus, this epidemic, this pandemic, this lockdown um, has had me working on a book of short stories. And I, I, I continued to kind of bash away at some of them. And I got through like two more stories. So um, I'd like to get it to about 15, 16 stories, kind of like an album, and then put it out. But I have a very creative title that I already thought of. I got everything laced up. I'd like to actually publish the book myself and then see if we can find a distributor the way I did with the music. So I tell people, if you are an artist, like a singing artist, man, don't let this stop your creative process, your creative person in general, you know, write poems, draw things, you know, write stories, write plans, make outlines, make, write a will, do anything creative in life that is necessary, that is going to help you. All right. Let me ask you this final question. So, you know, your fans, those of us, we saw that you went on tour last fall, the Middle Passage tour. You performed some new music. And so I'm just wondering, because everybody else is, and you know I'm going to ask you this question. He's like, no, please don't. <laughs> I just want to know. Tell me what's up with the album. All right. Um, my producer had to leave his house because his roommate has coronavirus. Oh, boy. So that was kind of a monkey in the wrench. Uh, my friend passing away really set me back, but that was only a couple of weeks. We got to about like 11 songs, and then we just kind of grinded to a halt because everything stopped going, stopped working. You know, the, the label um, shut down for like two weeks. Essentially, what I'd like to do is get as many of these songs to a working mode as we can, and now we don't have as much lead time. So I think that... When we put the record out, it's going to be very sudden. My producer is resituated. He's in a new apartment and he's okay. And I'm feeling like a lot better about everything else. Um, also, a very, very close friend of mine, um, his mother, who's a, a medical professional, she's a nurse. She caught a very serious case of coronavirus. And thank God she's in recovery now. And I just want to send prayers to her and say that you know, we love you and we appreciate all the people that are on the front lines of this thing. So that was something else, not just getting myself right, but I got to make sure all my people are right around me. You know what I mean? That was Felipe Coronel, a.k.a. Immortal Technique, talking to us from his apartment in Harlem, New York. When I last sat down with Immortal Technique face-to-face -face at the NPR studios in New York City, we really got deep into his background. He spoke about building his career in New York City's underground rap scene and how he was going to become the activist that he is today. We're going to bring back that conversation now. And just a heads up in this interview, there will be some discussions about rape and sexual violence. So, Felipe, you were born in Peru. Mm -hmm. Where in Peru? Um, I was born in the Hospital Militar de Lima. And what, what area of Lima? 
Um, I lived in a place called San Martín de Porres. I have a house there now. It's very much like Harlem in the sense that it was, you know, a, a dilapidated neighborhood for years, even though it has its originations in a very, very upscale area, right? 50, 80 years ago, and then it turned into a slum. And it's funny because, you know, my father, who grew up in Peru, who thought he would live his whole life there, experienced, you know, 5,000% inflation in a year, a virtual civil war between, you know, Maoist guerrillas and a CIA-backed paramilitaries. And in order to find peace and quiet, he moved to Harlem in the 1980s. And that's the <laughs> life I began to live. I'm on the border of Bolivia, working for pennies, treated like a slave. The coca fields have to be ready. The spirit of my people is starving, broken and sweaty, dreaming about revolution, looking at my machete. As a youth, I, I would go back there whenever my, my parents, we wouldn't buy like fancy things. You know what I mean? We didn't have the newest toys or something like that. If we got them, we got them off secondhand. And my clothes all came from a church. Everything that we had was saving up to go home to see my family and to make sure that we maintain that cultural connection. Because I think it was it was very important for my parents to make me understand what it meant to be here and to have those opportunities. It definitely was an eye-opener in the sense that it exposed poverty to me in a way I had never seen it. In America, you live with the illusion of a safety net, right? The illusion of the safety net. You're going to have Medicare. You got Social Security. All these things are going to take care of you. And I think out in Peru, it was more like you're swimming in the ocean alone and you realize that you're swimming in the ocean alone. At what point did you, as Felipe, as a young person, did you begin to kind of process, well, there's this reality, but then there's the illusion, because so much of your work as an artist, as a musician, is about kind of pulling back the cover. Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of the world itself, I think uh, my father was one of the first best teachers I had. Like, he was recruited out of the Peruvian military to be at Columbia University. But it wasn't until I started actually studying human beings that I came to certain realizations about the society that we live in. It wasn't an epiphany that I came to these realizations. I think it was more of a slow burn of realizing that there were just one other layer, one other thing. You know, uh, I'm a person who's visibly Latino, but, you know, my mom's father is black originally. Uh, his family's from the Caribbean. So I grew up with a very, very different idea of African, indigenous, Latino relations, you know. In many ways, I witnessed a lot of people, uh, both especially Puerto Ricans and Dominicans, uh, that I grew up with, friends of mine, that were in total denial of their African ancestry. And I'm looking at them and I'm like, dude, you're 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 blacker than pepper and you're talking about how you're not black. You're, you're, you're calling people Prieto and all these other names and you're, you're talking about your mom, you know that, right? Just like the Spanish exterminating Tainos, raping the black and Indian women, creating Latinos. Your parents had a lot of hopes, maybe about the illusion of the United States. You're actually going to, at that time, you're going to one of the best public schools in New York City. Mm -hmm. That's the reason my parents stayed in the city. They were originally going to move to Canada for the free health care. And I got into, I was living in Harlem and I got into uh, Hunter. So when you say Hunter, that's Hunter College High School, which is this public school in New York City. It's very high performing. You, you can test into it. So you have to be super bright to get in. And speaking of Hunter College High School... We've got to bring up somebody who has also been on Latino USA a couple of times, Lin-Manuel Miranda. 
you know, the accusation is that you were actually a bully to Lin-Manuel, that you, um, he says you terrorized kids and that you even threw him in a trash can. Uh, well, his rapper name is Immortal Technique. Uh-huh. He's one of the most sort of politically ideological, he really made sort of an incredible life for himself as uh, as a rapper. Right. He was a school bully. And he terrorized kids. He'd throw them in the garbage. I got thrown in the garbage by him. Isn't that interesting? And, um, yeah, he was a really angry kid. And how, how are you and Lin Manuel? How is uh, that? No, we, we, we talked, uh, and he was like, yo, I'm sorry about the way the story came out. I didn't mean to say that you were like the most wicked person in the world. And obviously, you know, you changed as a, as an individual since then. And we were a bit on good terms. You know, I've never had like an outstanding issue because of that particular interview. It was more more about what other people had brought into the conversation because to be honest uh he wasn't the only one that got thrown in the trash can there were dozens of people thrown in the trash can i was a definite definite uh violent person and i think that the contrast came because i was expected to be a certain way at school and then when i left school uh, a lot of the kids from school didn't have to deal with the same repercussions and same issues that i had to it's like cambodia the killing fields uptown we live in distress and hang the flag upside down the sound of conservative politicians on television people in the hood are blind so they tell us to listen they vote for us to go to war instantly but none of their kids serve in the infantry the odds are stacked against us like a casino think about it most of the army is black and latino the rage and anger that i experienced as a kid was from living in that dual life you know what i mean from going to a good school with a bunch of people who you know maybe sometimes would have a attitude problem and then me going home to harlem which was just totally different like with harlem i I remind people in 1988 87 it was tough so i Maybe a lot of the things that I had seen and witnessed really kind of changed stuff. Like a, a lot of kids, sure, you lived in New York, but you didn't see the same things that I saw. So at one time you were asked about the bullying and the violence and you said, quote, I guess at 17, it was hard for me to see that the person I was really fighting was myself. I chose violence to be the tool of deconstructing other people's issues. Um, And it led to creating more issues to myself. So every time someone thought just because he's smart, he's soft, I reminded them every day that I would hurt them in some way. Like everything about me was structured to fight with people. To be honest, while I imagined that I liked that at the time, really inside of me, I didn't like that. It wasn't something that I enjoyed. It was something that I saw as a necessity. It's touch and go. It's not like I was just a purely wicked kid. So the rage actually lands you in prison. Is it in prison where you basically decide that that's where you want to move into rap? Or how is it that you decide rap is the place where you're going to find your expression? I think one of the things... um, about prison isn't that it decided to make me choose rap as a career. I chose rap in prison as a form of meditation, as a form of finding peace. I was thrown in the hole one time. Um, For people who don't know what that is, that's solitary confinement, where you basically live in and exist in a very dark space. Native American cat named Judge, he came by my cell and he shoved a piece of paper and like a half broken pencil in the cell and he was like, yo man, don't go crazy in there. And I, I really, man, you know, if there's a person out there who who I owe, you know what I mean, to pay their rent, it's definitely judge because 
man, that piece of paper was covered with so many writing. It looked like like I only had one piece of paper to write on. So it was like I wrote on all the lines, then I wrote on the sides, then I wrote on the other sides. I wrote on the back. I wrote on the outside lines. This thing was like the holy grail. So if I should ever fall and get caught in a hustle, let them know that I died while I fought in a struggle. From the hood rats to rich kids lost in a bubble, spray painted on the streets and in the subway tunnels. I used to wonder, I used to wonder. Coming up on Latino USA, we talk about Immortal Technique's first album and the song that launched his career. Stay with us. No te vayas. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp the online counseling service dedicated to connecting you with a licensed counselor to help you overcome whatever stands in the way of your happiness. Fill out a questionnaire and get matched with a professional tailored to your needs. And if you aren't satisfied with your counselor, you can request a new one at any time free of charge. Visit BetterHelp.com Latino to get 10% off your first month. Get the help you deserve with BetterHelp. We're in the middle of a global pandemic. But people are still looking for love. I think it might very well be the very best first date I've had. And finding love. That you're talking with a regularity that feels good to you. And making love work. Setting up an actual date night. Love in the age of coronavirus. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. Hey, we're back. And when we left off, Immortal Technique was telling us about how he got into rap. We're going to pick up now with his first album and the infamous song, Dance with the Devil. Just a heads up, in this section of the conversation, we're going to be talking about rape and sexual violence. You released Revolutionary Volume 1. That was your first album in 2001. And on that album is basically the song that launched your career, Dance with the Devil. Whew. Which yeah. um, I was listening to it this morning in preparation <laughs> oh, again. Jesus Christ. Just, yeah, no, and I'm sitting here like, whoo. They drove around a project slow while it was raining Smoking blunts, drinking and joking for entertainment Until they saw a woman on the street walking alone Three in the morning coming back from work on the way home And so they quietly got out the car and followed her Walking through the projects, the darkness swallowed her They wrapped a shirt around their head and knocked her onto the floor This is it, kid now What was it about Dance with the Devil that you think launched your career, essentially? I, I could give you a million different answers But I'm going to give you the ugliest one. Everybody either knows someone or has been sexually assaulted themselves. And I think the song came at a time when people were trying to kind of weed through a new generation of hip-hop during the 2000 era and looking for who had kind of substance in the music. We never had a song about rape ever in hip-hop. Ever. We've we've probably discussed that. It's been thrown around, 
but a song in which we showed how that really means you're raping yourself, you're destroying yourself. And then the underlying themes of it, sister, which are that all human beings that are alive right now have to be related. And I wanted that point to resonate in the people's minds when they were out there listening to that music. Boy pulled the d- and ended a life. He thought about the cocaine with the platinum and ice, and he felt strong standing along with his new brothers. Cocked it to a head and pulled back the shirt cover. But what he saw made him start to cringe and stutter because he was staring into the eyes of his own mother. She looked back. At what him comes up for you as you're processing that song? I mean, it's a it's a difficult thing to talk about, only because there are women in my family and people I've known my whole life that have been survivors of rape. And, um, you know, obviously it's it's not my choice whether I share their story. Um, it's not my place without their permission. But I felt like I wanted to draw some idea towards the disgusting nature of what it is and how it actually has a huge place in our human society. It's really tough to hear that. And so when I've been able to listen to, for example, your love song, You Never Know. People like you, instead I took her out to the Apollo in the Bronx Zoo, who sailed in Barrio and the Metro. Which I just love because, you know, you talk about taking your love whether to the Metropolitan Museum of Art <laughs> yeah. or to Museo del Barrio. You know, and seriously, just hearing that in a rap song that's a love song, that's a side of you. You know, the gentle kind of romantic side. There is tech. a romantic side, yeah. Um, I remember the, the I think I, I've written a lot of interesting tweets. I think one of the ones that went the most viral is, I don't know how many thousands it had, but I, I wrote something and I said, you know, if I really like her, I might buy her flowers. I said, but if I love her, I'll write her a story. After all, what good are flowers when you can create a universe just for her? Writing brought me out of misery and pain. You know, sometimes if I really love somebody, I would write something for them, something that would help them heal, something that would put their problems, whatever it is that I know about them, into the proper perspective. Little credit card scam and jewelry stealing, crack selling, liquor store robbing. It's a rich man's world. <laughs> so in 2011, you released uh, Rich Man's World. You know, in a lot of ways, it feels like you were kind of expecting a Donald Trump to appear on the scene before a lot of other people were. I mean, I put out a lot of uh, messages in the music. Some people that some people at first accused me of being a conspiracy theorist. But here's an interesting thing. Uh, What were my big conspiracies on Revolutionary Volume 2? That the Iraq war was based off lies. I then brought up that the government was listening to all your emails and tapping your, your phone. And people said, that's absurd technique. You live you live in 1984, that's never gonna happen. And, and look what happened. So the idea that a demagogue, a caudillo, would come in isn't something that is part of the radical imagination of someone who lives in the never-ending story. It's something that was eventually going to happen here in the United States. Cause they don't want my dirty laundry aired when I fight it. My lawyer's excited, cause what good is the law if you can't rewrite it? I got CIA traders, dictators, so y'all whistleblowers and haters. A lot of Latinos and Latinas, immigrants, are waking up and they're feeling powerless, angry, filled with rage, um, confused. 
sometimes hopeless. How are you translating those emotions into your art right now? Um, one of the things I started doing is I started working with various human rights organizations. That's something that has always given me a really grounded sense of peace. One of them, of course, was the border angels, the people that leave water drops and food drops for those people walking through the desert. And the other was a group that I feel doesn't receive enough attention as well. It's called the Green Card Veterans. And these are people who some of them served in multiple theaters of war. I think people need to realize a lot of these individuals have been deported or are fighting deportation. Is there any of your writings recently that you can share with us about those issues, about the cream? Yeah, there is, there's actually a song I have. I can't, I can't spit it right now because I know my producer, listen to me, we've kept this under wraps so hard. One line? Uh, no. Well, God bless you. One line? You're a great hustler. I love you. <laughs> got a good hustle. No, um, I think that what, what we're, we're talking about is uh, a song that describes the—we uh, we touched on it earlier—the depression and the suicide of people who have gone to war. And part of that was talking about this particular issue. So what is Immortal Technique processing now as a musician, as an American? Where is it coming together for you? My son, of course, who was your biggest fan, was like, how come he hasn't written? No, 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 no. I've written plenty (laughs) of stuff. I just haven't haven't released it. Um, And there's a lot of reasons for that. Okay, so the question of your many, many, many fans, (laughs) you know that. The question is... My dad, my mom. Your your dad, your mom, (laughs) me, we want to know. When's the next text song that we can... Um, okay, I, I actually do have a couple of features coming out, uh, which are just songs that I'm on for other people's projects. And then in terms of the record that I have, I'm closer than I've ever been. And we're looking forward to hearing it too. Thank you so much, Immortal Technique. Eh, Felipe, Coronel, thank you so much for all of your work. Thank you very much for having me here. The Middle Passage coming soon. SP in the building, my dude Mecca. Harlem, Brooklyn, you already know. (laughs) Harlem in the house. This episode was produced by Alejandra Salazar and Maggie Freeling and edited by Marlon Bishop and Sofia Palizaca. The Latino USA team includes Miguel Macias, Luis Treyes, Antonia Cerejido, Janice Yamoka, Jeannie Montalvo, and Alisa Escarce, with help from Raul Perez. Our engineers are Stephanie LeBeau and Julia Caruso. Additional engineering this week by Leah Shaw, and we're sending you a big thumbs up. Our director of programming and operations is Natalia Fidelholtz. Our digital editor is Amanda Alcantara. Our intern is Julia Rocha. Our theme music was composed by Zenia Rubinos. If you like the music you heard on this episode, stop by latinousa.org and check out our weekly Spotify playlist. I'm your host and executive producer, Maria Hinojosa. Join us again on our next episode. And in the meantime, look for us on all of your social media. Stay safe and hasta la próxima. Ciao. Latino USA is made possible in part by the Heising Simons Foundation, unlocking knowledge, opportunity, and possibilities. More at hsfoundation.org. The Wincote Foundation.
And funding for Latino USA's coverage of a culture of health is made possible in part by a grant from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. We could go on for a while, but forever. I'm Maria Hinojosa. Next time on Latino USA. We look at the damage that Latino small business owners are facing during the COVID-19 crisis and how they've been shut out from the relief that was meant to help them. This is going to be a sort of generational asset destruction for communities of color and low-income people. That's next time on Latino USA.